Hello and welcome to the Monash Musculoskeletal Research Unit podcast. My name is Josh Norton. I'm a sports and exercise physiotherapist and PhD candidate with the MMRU unit. In today's episode, we will be taking a look at two recently published papers that investigate the effects of exercise treatment for rotator cuff tendinopathy. Both these papers have made a big impact, mostly because they are large trials with many more participants than previously published papers in this area, but also because of their interesting findings. These two papers made a big splash and there has been much discussion on social media. The GRASP trial, with over 700 participants, was published in The Lancet in July 2021, just a couple of months ago. The GRASP trial follows a 2 by 2 design, investigating the effect of a single session of best practice advice with and without a steroid injection versus uh, up to six face-to-face sessions of progressive resistance exercise with a physio with and without a steroid injection. And a SEXI trial with 200 participants was published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine, September 2021. The SEXI trial investigated the effect of usual physiotherapy care with an add-on intervention of high-volume resistance exercise versus usual physiotherapy care alone. Joining me in today's discussion is leader, co-host and tendinopathy expert, Dr. Peter Maliaris, as well as our previous guest and expert on all things exercise prescription, Dr. Dawson Kidgel. So today we're going to take a look at two um, papers that uh, look at shoulder pain and rotator cuff tendinopathy. The first paper is the SEXI trial from Mikhail Ben-Clawson and uh, his colleagues. Uh, And the second paper we're going to take a look at is the GRASP trial, which was published in the Lancet. Um, Both these papers have large sample sizes um, and both of them look at exercise intervention for rotator cuff tendinopathy. So we're going to uh, discuss them briefly and look at some of their strengths and limitations. Um, And obviously, of course, uh, these papers have made uh, a big impact in the way they've been um, conducted, uh, obviously due due to the large sample size, but also their interesting findings um, or their findings that maybe show that there's not too much effect from the intervention that they applied. So if I can ask you, Peter, could you give us a short summary of the uh, two papers and their differences? So the uh, thanks, Josh. The the so with with the sexy trial, it is they're both pragmatic um, effectiveness trials, and effectiveness being they're looking at more real world conditions. Um, the the Denmark paper, the sexy trial, that is looking at the addition of uh, exercise over and above um, whatever they usually get in terms of exercise. And that's the way they treat rotator cuff related shoulder pain in Denmark. Um, they give them exercise anyway, but they're looking at the addition of additional exercise on top of that. So it's a pragmatic design. They're looking at if you add additional exercise, does it make a difference? Um, or as, um, the grasp trial, is um, is different to that. Do you want to talk about the GRASP now or later? Um, let, let, let's just give a quick summary of the GRASP trial. Um, so the yep. So the gra- I can go into that. The GRASP is um, basically a factorial randomised control trial, and they um, they looked at the question of if you deliver 
what is uh, recommended exercise and education uh, in one session with a physio versus six sessions or more. I think it was up to the discretion of the individual physio and patient, but I think it was up to six or seven sessions. Um, is there a difference? And also it was factorial because they also, in each of those arms, they had the, the other question of, what about if you give them a baseline steroid injection? Does that make a difference? So they had four groups all together. Excellent. Thanks very much, uh, Peter. That's a good summary. Um, what we're really kind of interested in talking about today is um, some of the reasons that they may have found no effect or some of the kind of implications of that uh, and also some of the uh, opportunities we might have to kind of replicate or do further research that investigates this. We obviously know that uh, exercise is the baseline or core recommendation for uh, rotator cuff tendinopathy treatment. Um, and so far to date, uh, we've seen that exercise um, is perhaps better than no treatment or wait and see, but we haven't been able to say which particular type of exercise is most important or most effective. So uh, Dawson, you've got an extensive background in exercise prescription and obviously from an exercise physiologist point of view, uh, have a slightly different angle and uh, great experience in looking at these particular topics. Could you give us your kind of overview or brief uh, thoughts on these two papers? Yeah, I think... Um the, the the both the papers themselves, um, in in my opinion, and from looking at what parameters of exercise prescription they're trying to utilize, um, are probably slightly inadequate. There's a number of what we call the acute exercise variables um, that seem to be missing, and a lot of focus seems to be placed upon you know time under tension and this this concept around um, high volume. Um, but one thing that dictates volume is, is load um, so, and failure. So they often talk about time under tension and going to failure um, in the sort of tendinopathy-based studies. And whilst I'm not an expert in tendons, um, I've always thought, and we've taken this approach in the way in which we train or rehabilitate cancer patients, we train them like elite athletes, um, when we train cancer patients, we do it through chemo during chemotherapy. So I'm not sure why in these types of studies that don't look at the literature around normal tissue um, and try to use some of the parameters that we would use to strengthen and prevent injuries and apply those models to um, tissue rehabilitation. Um, for instance, when you look at going to fatigue or to failure, um, there is a plethora of evidence now and even systematic reviews that strongly show that avoiding um, failure produces greater adaptation within the muscle and the nervous system. And I often wonder that if you can increase the strength, how does that then affect their, their functionality? And I've not yet seen a paper that has chosen to do that. When I look at these studies, I really just see a model of um, endurance and I'm not too sure and it's really focal, um, so they're really going to the side of pain, um, not looking at maybe possible other muscles first to then improve the loading, so then looking at that load volume in a bit more detail. Um, and just in my opinion, there's lots of little bits of um, basic exercise prescription missing. 
Mm. You've got you've got a, a lot of great points there, Dawson. I mean, we can just uh, look at a couple of those. What would you say are those key uh, acute exercise prescription variables that people should be focused on and thinking about as they're giving an exercise program? I think the first one is the principle of um, individuality and the principle of specificity. So I don't think you can just do a generic, you know, three sets of 15 repetitions for every person that has a rotator cuff injury. Um, what we tend to do, and particularly in, in the exercise physiology space, is um, we are very heavy on patient-centred management. Um, and one way we can get around that is we can use a technique known as auto-regulated progressive resistance exercise. So rather than saying we're going to do three phases, like I think one of the studies had phase one, phase two, phase three, um, that is a classic model of what we call fixed linear periodization. So you might start off with 15 to 20 repetitions in phase one, then you might move down to 10 to 12, and then in phase three you might do, say, 8 to 10, so you're increasing the load over that period of time. We know that doesn't really have a beneficial effect um, on, on improving muscle function. And one way we can get around that is by this auto-regulated resistance exercise. And what they basically achieved in the previous session. So rather than trying to predict what they can do in phase three, you just manipulate each training session based upon what they've done in the first one. And there's a number of tools we can use for that. And I talked about this last week, which was, you know, repetitions in reserve and RPE would be an example. Excellent. Fantastic. And would you say that we've got enough evidence to tell us what gives you the most optimal adaptation in healthy tissue? Uh, what, what sort of, yeah. uh, what, what sort of uh, guidelines would there be that is supported from the evidence that says uh, this is what you should do to get the uh, best adaptation out of tissue for healthy people? Yeah, well, there's just been a recent systematic review in um, sports medicine um, looking at how muscles get strong and it covers all the different techniques that you can use, um, including auto-regulated progressive resistance exercise. Um, so go there. It's in the latest edition. Um, but besides that, there are countless systematic reviews that show you consistently that um, auto-regulating your training, avoiding failure, but getting having proximity to failure, and the way we calculate proximity to failure is um, at least two repetitions in reserve, um, and you use that to then guide your sessions week by week. Um, and there's lots of evidence to show that. If people don't have the time to look at the literature, I would suggest you go to um, the website called Monthly Applications in um, Strength Science. They provide a very nice um, synopsis of all the research that gets published each week um, about strength training and muscle function, including rehabilitation, and they have many articles and podcasts that talk specifically about auto-regulation um, versus percentages of 1RM and all these different factors, velocity, um, which is another thing that these papers talk about. Um, I think they use the word low velocity. I don't know what that means. Um, but there's different things you can do to control all these parameters to get a better training response. And all those things I've talked about are covered quite nicely in, in the mass um, production. 
Excellent. Thank you. Uh, we'll make sure we pop some links to those resources in the show notes. Um, Peter, if I can uh, get your kind of uh, perspectives, obviously from a physio background and looking at the, uh, you know, sort of area of uh, tendinopathy, uh, what's your kind of uh, first impressions or overall impression from both of these two papers? So I think probably the, the, the thing that I would um, firstly say is that they are they're very large studies. They're very well conducted in terms of the science. So the the actual methods are really strong. They've got large sample. I mean, probably the biggest tick they get is the fact that they've got a massive sample size, both of them. And most of the studies in this area are hugely underpowered. So that's that's really the first thing that they've done, which is really good and, and a difficult thing to do. Um, so they should be commended for that. I absolutely agree with, you know, Dawson's points about the exercise um, is something to consider. But the other thing to consider in contrary to that, I'm going to defend the authors here a bit, is that these are pragmatic trials. So these are trials, in a way, trying to reproduce what happens or what can happen uh, practically in a in a setting where you're giving people some exercise, you're maybe not seeing them so often and they're doing it at home and we're going to see what happens. So it does answer the question, um, and if we take the SEXI trial, it does answer the question of is, is adding a bit more, um, and they had some evidence that they did a bit more, uh, but as Dawson has pointed out, we don't really know much about what that more was and how effective it could have been. Um, does adding a bit more in this con in their context, in the way they've done it, add to additional benefit? And the answer was it doesn't. Um, so that they did answer the question. So you can you can say that they've answered a question that they set out to answer. But of course, they have done it in an effectiveness paradigm where. There's a lot of things that were not controlled and could not be controlled. Uh, and that's probably not the fault of the authors, but um, that does leave the question open. If you did something like what Dawson is suggesting and you looked at people in that way and you followed them up adequately, would there be a different effect? Because we don't know the answer to that question. So that's probably, I guess that's the most important thing to realise that in any one trial, you're not going to be able to answer all the questions that are out there. Um, and as I think you alluded to at the start, um, Josh, it's the uh, the GRASS trial is looking at, um, they haven't looked at the comparison of is, is it better than doing nothing at all? And in the literature, we know uh, none of these trials have. So we still don't have the answer to the question or a strong answer from a very high powered uh, trial like these are of is exercise better than doing nothing at all? We have some signals um, from your systematic review and from other studies, but we still don't have really strong evidence saying that doing exercise is better than nothing. And these trials don't even answer that question. So I guess the point that I would make is they do answer important questions, but obviously they're not gonna be able to answer all the questions that we're interested in. Excellent, that's a, a nice little summary. Um, one of the things that has come out from uh, the discussion around these particular papers has been regarding adherence. Um, bo both these papers report sort of variable adherence across uh, their results. Um, Dawson, how difficult do you think it is to get adherence through a kind of, uh, you know, pragmatic effectiveness trial like this? Or uh, would you suggest that there's a more optimal way to look at adherence? 
Um, I don't know if there's a more optimal way to look at adherence because there's too many factors that are involved in making people adhere. Um, the one thing we have done previously with some of our large clinical trials um, is particularly in older adults is we had a concept called um, weights on wheels. Um, so we went around and employed exercise physiologists to go and train people. We found that anything we do that relies on um, individuals to be responsible for part of their training intervention, whether it means they come and see us for six sessions across a 16-week period, but they're required to do, you know, four or five sessions a week by themselves, we just don't get the adherence. We provide education, we provide phone calls, we check in. Um, so I think in that context, it's very difficult to get adherence because there's too many other factors that can stop people from exercising. Globally, there's an issue with a lack of physical activity, so that only increases the problem. Um, but I think with the emerging technologies that are now available, which you're probably more accustomed to speak to, that could improve adherence. But um, in part, I think, you know, the only way to get around it is to be physically training them. Um, whether there's like a, I don't know, a subacromial impingement syndrome fitness centre, I don't know. Um, they do that in cancer. For cancer patients, they have a dedicated centre where they just put it in as part of their treatment. Um, but in terms of these large trials, I think adherence is always going to be an issue. You can study it to the heel, um, but I don't think you'll ever overcome it. Mm. It's, a, it's certainly a, a really big challenge for studies is to kind of uh, track adherence or implement adherence. I, I think um, what we'll see in the future is perhaps some uh, technologies being used to measure some adherence. And certainly the SEXI trial incorporated that in uh, looking at the sensor that they used on the elastic band during the exercise. So uh, I think that's a good space to be watching. Um, Peter, where, where do you kind of think uh, these trials lead us to in the next steps regarding uh, exercise and rotator cuff tendinopathy? So the GRASS trial, and we probably haven't um, mentioned yet what the GRASS trial, uh, what the findings were, but um, I don't think we have, but let's, uh, let's just brush on that and then we can go on to the next steps. I think the GRASS trial is certainly the biggest one um in uh in this shoulder space ever as they recruited i think eight, almost 800 people uh, into the forearms so about 200 per arm um, and they were looking at um exercise over one session versus six or more or it might have been around six i can't remember now uh, but um they didn't show a difference between those groups. So uh, the recommendation from that is that you can deliver this treatment that we know is possibly going to help most people. Um, and that was the case. Most people got better, but it doesn't really matter if you do it in one session or six. That's the recommendation from that from that trial. Um, and we've, we've talked about some of the limitations in terms of adherence, in terms of the type of exercise they did, etc. Um, but I think the next step is to look at, um, I guess, I guess watering down that intervention. We still don't know. We still don't know whether exercise is better than doing nothing at all, or better than placebo. Um, and I do think that's an important question because there are people that there are certainly because the evidence is so uncertain. You, you're always going to have people that will be thinking quite rightly that maybe we shouldn't be doing exercise for these people and maybe it isn't effective 
And we really need to know whether it is. Uh, we probably have all have a bias that exercise should be effective and we know it will improve strength, but whether it does improve pain um, is, is still not known. So I think the obvious next step is to compare the, a grasp type intervention or a sexy type intervention or a better intervention so one like what Dawson and you guys were talking about earlier, uh, with uh, something like a wait and see or something like a placebo arm, uh, maybe you could do both. So you could do, right, this is what people usually do in practice, which is off you go, do your three sets of 15 um, or whatever people do in these trials. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't like that. They were actually... And they were actually better than that. But then compare that to a really auto-regulated, really sort of looking at intensity, focused on intensity type intervention, and then compare that to wait and see. That's just off the top of my head, something that you might go to uh, as a next step. Yeah, excellent. And I think um, you bring up a good point there, Peter. Um, you know, you talked about the links between perhaps strength improvement and pain improvement. Uh, one of the kind of discussion points that's been talked about a lot uh, is that the strength improvement was minimal uh, in the sexist trial where it was measured. Um, I can't quite remember or recall if it was measured directly in the GRASP trial or whether it was just a functional measure. Uh, but Dawson, what would you expect to see in terms of strength improvement uh, for maybe patients with rotator cuff tendinopathy? And do you think there's a link between the strength improvement uh, and their you know, improvement in pain, or is it more complex than that? Um, well, it's probably more complex than that, but I, I can speak in terms of I've done some work in knee osteoarthritis, and we definitely see that there's a, a nice relationship between the change in strength um, of the affected limb and the, the, the reduction in pain. Um, so we know that occurs um, at least for the RA. Um, I'm not too sure how pain differs between the rotator cuff tendons and maybe an osteoarthritic joint, but I, I would think that if you could, if you could increase strength, there should be some, some benefit to pain reduction um, purely because I'd just be more, more functional um, and being able to do tasks a little bit better. Um, I don't disagree in any way, shape, or form, in the sense that I think the other aspect that needs to be addressed in these trials is the concept of periodization. So maybe looking at a treatment plan rather than just a single intervention. So it might be that you need to manage pain first. Once you've dropped their pain by a certain percentage, you then go into the strength training using sound principles that we know work for healthy tissue and then monitoring it that way. But I guess... Um, the issue is going to be is that people want a quick fix. And unfortunately, when we use exercise as our form of treatment, it, it does take time. Um, but I would say no reason why um, there could have been increase in strength. In general, we see changes in strength across a four-week period, you know, anywhere between, you know, um, sort of 6% as far as up to 50%, depending on, on the individual response, because there are different responders. Um, when we look at strength gain, but I don't see why, you know, it wouldn't change. And I think you need to be realistic um, in the way in which maybe the, the shoulder is strengthened. When I know there's deficits in internal and external rotation, I get all that. Um, but I'm not too sure how many purposeful movements throughout the day actually encompass that, such an isolated movement. Um, maybe there needs to be some consideration about some different types of exercises 
um, in combination with those rotator cuff, rotator cuff exercises that may be a bit more advantageous over time? I think, um, you know, that, that's a really good point, Dawson, and hopefully we'll see some uh, research that maybe supports that uh, in, in the future. Um, uh, any final comments from uh, either you, Peter, or Dawson? It's been a good chat on these particular two papers and looking at some really interesting points. Just one from me. I, just as Dawson was speaking, I thought of a, a good study idea, and that would be to look at uh, all the exercise trials that um, are in the musculoskeletal space and then look at how many involve an exercise physiologist. Uh, because some of the stuff that Dawson is talking about, you, you do see that it's lacking from most trials. And a part of it might be the pragmatic nature of some of these trials, as we've talked about. But um, there is certainly, it's a wide open space for changing the way that exercise is delivered for these for these sort of chronic pain populations. So that, that's just something that popped up. So if anyone's doing a review at the moment and listening to this and you've got all these musculoskeletal trials, maybe look at how many people are, um, you know, are actually exercise fees background. That's a, that's a good idea. Uh, and last maybe question I have for you, just thinking of it, Dawson, would be, uh, you know, do you think it's realistic to apply those principles we have from healthy populations um, and, you know, get people with pain, you know, following those principles in terms of their exercise, uh, you know, perhaps after their pain settled a little bit, but do you think it's realistic for people in pain to follow those same principles? Yeah, I do. I think I think so, but I think in order for that to occur, um, I think um, maybe physios and sports medicine practitioners need to have a much better understanding about all the different ways in which we can load tissue. Um, and you know, currently, what I see in these studies is just one method of loading. And I think if there was greater awareness of how tissue could be loaded and the way in which we could monitor it session by session, um, that there should be no reason why. Um, you know, you guys could not move towards that model. We do that in the clinical exercise physiology space, even with, you know, cancer patients, total, you know, bloody lung um, transplant patients, kidney disease. We train them like athletes. Um, so there's no reason why I wouldn't think a, a person with pain couldn't do something similar. I just think you need to be aware um, of that space around how we can manipulate these variables. And just to go back to the, you know, the clinical exercise phys area, I mean, 15 years ago, we were having this battle. So I think we're now moving into the space in terms of musculoskeletal rehab, where we're now starting to think about different ways in which we can rehabilitate people. And I think going looking at the model of normal tissue and how it adapts, even though you're dealing with abnormal tissue, I get that, could be a way to go forward. Can I ask you a question, Dawson? Why has cancer uh, exercise research moved in that direction? What do you think the drive? Like, can we learn from what they've done? Yes. What are the drivers? Yeah, so basically, um, so Robert Newton, who's a big professor over at Edith University, is probably one of the biggest movers in, in terms of cancer and exercise-related research. And um, it was basically a high-powered strength and conditioning coach training elite athletes and um, I think maybe a family member may have got cancer and started exercising them um, and then realised that the training response was exactly the same as an athlete, all these positive physiological adaptations. It turns out that all of these adaptations um, have a very positive effect on the negative effects of cancer-related fatigue um, and the ability for someone to um, receive chemotherapy but also um, reduce the 
the negative effects of that chemotherapy. Um, but when that was first occurring, all the oncologists thought that, well, if you're going to exercise and increase blood flow, you're just going to spread the cancer. Um, it's yeah. obviously mm. not the case. And um, so now they've basically got it to a point where patients are having chemotherapy and doing exercise. So, you know, they've got their dripping and they're walking around and doing exercise and finding out the outcomes are remarkable. Um, and the techniques that are being used are exactly the same as what would be used in training athletes in healthy tissue. Um, I guess mm. that model's been spread, and particularly, you know, Exercise Sport Science Australia has been a big driver of all of this. Um, mm. And unfortunately, I think maybe the sports medicine field's just sort of lacking a little bit. Um, they're trying to potentially, which, as you say, use techniques. Um, but what I'm suggesting is that maybe there needs to be a bit more education around these parameters of exercise. Um, and I think for more education, we can provide around these parameters, probably there'll be practice change and that may lead to better outcomes. Excellent. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Dawson and Peter, for joining us here today. Uh, there's been some uh, great tips and uh, uh, some really interesting kind of reflections throughout this. Um, I'd also like to say a uh, big congratulations to the authors of both these papers uh, to run a trial, uh, both with large numbers and to do so well and to produce the results that they've kind of uh, put out there. Um, certainly adds a lot to the field and is not an easy thing to do. So well done to both groups who've published these papers. Uh, thanks for your time and we look forward to uh, catching you on our next episode of the Monash Musculoskeletal Research Unit podcast.